Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us uh, Neema Shah, who's written Kololo Hill. That's how you pronounce it, right? Yes, that's right. Thanks. Okay, great. Uh, maybe I should read the flap so you know the readers know what the novel is about, right? Yeah. Uganda, 1972, a devastating decree is issued. All Ugandan Asians must leave the country in 90 days. They must take only what they can carry, give up their money and never return. For Asha and Prem, married a matter of months, it means abandoning the family business that, oh, sorry, not Prem, Pran. And uh, that Pran has worked so hard to save. For his mother, Jaya, it means saying goodbye to the house that has been her home for decades. But violence is escalating in Kampala and people are disappearing. Will they all make it to safety in Britain and will they be given refuge if they do? All the while, a terrible secret about the expulsion hangs over them, threatening to tear the family apart. From the green hilltops of Kampala to the terraced houses of London, with evocative flashbacks of a long, long ago life in Gujarat, Neema Shah's extraordinary debut explores what it means to leave your home behind, what it takes to start again and the length some will go to protect their loved ones so yeah so thank i think it was a great read thank you thanks so much and thanks for having me on the show as well i should say um thank you i really appreciate that <laughs> you know i mean i i don't usually uh, read a book in one sitting and i did that with this one so. wow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's brilliant mm. that's probably one of the you know the best things you can hear um from a reader so thank you yeah. And, uh, you know, like we were saying, I mean, I haven't heard, uh, I, ha- I haven't read a book that deals with this, you know, the fleeing Uganda and the Asians, um, you know, a- various communities, like Indians of various communities, yeah. fleeing Uganda um, uh, yeah. and Idi Amin's persecution, you know, which was a big thing. Yeah. Right. It was yeah exactly. Um, so I know. This is I, the first I, novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that there is one other that came out in the same year actually as me, but um, as in this year. But um, before that, there's not there's not much. Certainly not um, from a UK perspective. Um, and it was interesting, even when I was writing the novel, because I thought I thought it was such an interesting period, um, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be something people would be interested in. But it did at the back of my mind. I was also thinking it was strange that there weren't any books and maybe there was a reason for that. Um, but actually it was just, it had been that no one had decided to tackle that period. And clearly there has been interest. I've been very lucky, lots of um, positive responses from people saying, you know, it's great that these stories are being told um, because it obviously is a part of, Indian history it's a part of mm-hmm. a- African history and it's also a part of British history from this yes. perspective 
but uh, uh, why do you think no you know i mean i don't know the other novel that's out you're saying is out this year it hasn't been released in india i think or uh, possibly you know. not yet it's called we are all birds of uganda it's a slightly different it's a di- slightly different perspective but it still deals partly with the expulsion uh, period hmm. so why do you think it's taken so long you know yeah i'm 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 not really sure i mean i think well part of it um i think is that you know i'm an underrepresented writer i'd be classified as an underrepresented writer in the uk you know that mm. there are still problems with diversity in publishing mm. um so i think that there is uh, sometimes a reluctance for people from my kinds of backgrounds our, our backgrounds to to write novels and think that it's something that they can do so i think mm. there's that aspect there's probably an aspect of it's quite um in some ways a big topic you know it's in living memory yes. and mm. I felt I certainly felt like the weight on my shoulders of making sure that I was representing these things in a in a you know in the right way. Um mm. so I guess there's an aspect to that too. I mean even I I came to writing late um and and before that I did not think about writing. I didn't know any writers. I just didn't it wasn't something I even considered in the realms of possibility and I suspect mm. that there are other people like that and I would hope that um you know by writing books like this that maybe others will be more positive to 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 writing about the topic too hmm hmm but um uh, you know what i liked also is that you bring in um i mean while you're reading it you know you one also becomes aware of the isolation of indians in uh, uganda you know and also the, the self isolation both yes right you know yeah absolutely i mean it's such an interesting um history because it, essentially yeah what happened was i mean there were two waves of immigrant um indian immigrant um yeah. history into into east africa so yeah. one was sort of in the 19th century when um uh, the british were building the east african railway and then they needed help from what they considered the more reliable indians to help yeah. oversee the africans um mm. so there was that wave and and that a lot of the immigrants then uh, were from the punjab primarily um yes. but most of them went back um mm. and then there was a second wave which was what my grandparents were part of um in the 30s and 1930s and 40s um mm. from places like gujarat but also on parts of india um to east africa where they built um businesses and obviously stayed and that's what this family's history is and that's what i was trying to explore there um but in terms of the isolation you're absolutely right i think because because these people were coming from india and they were mm. obviously there was a need then to to become connected to each other because it, you yeah. know different cultures different races and so different religions um in particular um you know christian muslim hindu sikh um mm. and a close knit community was formed in a way that maybe wouldn't have been formed in india where they might have lived slightly more disparate lives but there was that need to be um a collective and to stay stick together because they were obviously from the same country so there was that and that's i think what partly led to the self isolation but the other aspect is the colonial aspect which yes. is very common and i know will be familiar to to most of um the listeners as well the the british as i said that you know that they were sort of dividing and ruling by suggesting that the indians were more support they were more reliable um mm. and and keeping them separate from the africans and that that legacy continued long after the british left there was that feeling that 
perhaps the Indians were superior and they started to feel that themselves to an extent. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that, that basically it's the, 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 the racism of the colonial uh, structure, I guess. So Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you spoke about your grandparents. So, uh, you know, talk about your family history and how you've, you've mentioned, I think, in the afterword that you've drawn from it. So talk yeah. about that, you know. Yeah, so... Um, my uh, my nanny, my maternal grandmother, she um, she was married to obviously my nana. My nana had already gone to um, to Kenya. So that actually, my parents were born in Kenya in Tanzania, but we have extended family in Uganda, and there are similarities in the cultures and so on. Um, mm. So my nanny, you know, I think she was seventeen. She had a young baby. She got onto a steamer during World War Two. The mm. lights would be blacked out, obviously, because of the war. Um, and she went to meet her husband, who she didn't know that well, because they, they'd been <laughs> apart for most of their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always struck me as, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, their lives are so much more extraordinary. I mean, that, that is, that is sort of a, maybe a typical immigrant story. Those sorts of things are happening regularly to immigrants mm-hmm. and continue mm-hmm. to happen. Um, I found that really interesting and I wanted to explore that. So they obviously went over my, my paternal grandparents settled in Tanzania. Um, and, and for my family and for me, even, even though I was born in the UK, f- I, our second home is in many ways East Africa. Um, mm-hmm. India is obviously, we still have some family in Gujarat, but, but actually it's, it's East Africa and that there, you know, that connection has remained. Um, mm-hmm. and we still have fam- a lot more family in East Africa. So yeah, I wanted to explore that and, and also look at the different generations. So obviously the grand, my grandparents went over to, East Africa and they established themselves but there was still that connection to India because that's where they were born but then mm. my parents were born in East Africa and ha- have a different perspective my mum didn't go to India for the first time until her 40s so I oh. wanted to sort of look yeah exactly so I wanted to look at you know the the, the, the generational differences uh within mm. that as well um and and how that plays out and that's what I've done with the novel so you have uh, Motijan and Jaya, who are the older generation, um, and then you have Asha, Pran, and Bijay, who is Pran's brother, who are from the younger generation, who were born in East Africa, and for them to be told to leave East Africa, where they are told that they are not Ugandan, when actually that's all they've ever known. I wanted to explore yes. that aspect, and I also wanted to explore what it means for an Indian who had le- who had left in the 1940s, like Jaya and Motijan and my own grandparents to be told either go back to India where they hadn't lived for many decades or to go to somewhere brand new like the UK and what that would mean for them. So that they were the things that I was trying to explore. Hmm. So this is set in what, the summer of 72, I guess, right? Yes, Which is when, when this happened, when Idi Amin suddenly decided that people should leave in what, some 90 days or something. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> Um, Idi Amin came into power in 1971. Um, to be honest, though, even in the years before that, um, there was a an, another president, uh, Milton Obote. There were increasingly rest, uh, restrictions on the Asians um, because there was some resentment that they were holding their money, but also sending their wealth out of the country um mm. whilst that was partly true most ordinary ugandan asians didn't have the funds to be sending money out they were just trying to survive day to day um mm. but there, there was this resentment that had built over many years and uh, there were restrictions put on their businesses and what they could could do um and then 
Idi Amin took a much stronger stance. At first, he, you know, he said he wanted to work with the Asian businessmen, but by 1972, um, and he, he used to do things on a whim. Sometimes he would make laws and they would be changed the next day again. Mm-hmm. Um, so he announced uh, very suddenly, you know, yeah, the Ugandan Asians are just taking from this country. They're not giving anything back. I want them to leave in 90 days. They're only allowed to take 50 pounds each out of the country, which. 50 pounds? Yeah. So in today's money, that's a thousand pounds. It's, um, you know, it's, 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 barely enough for, for four plane tickets to, to anywhere yes. really so mm. um it's quite astonishing and, and and the first couple of days that it happened most people thought that he would change his mind or that it was a joke um mm. so that unsettled feeling of then realizing that this was really happening and that you know you had three months to get out of a country that you'd spent your whole life in um you know that's such a fracturing of your whole life and and the community and that was what compelled me to write this I couldn't imagine something like that happening and mm. wanted to explore it mm. um, uh, okay there's also you know while I was reading it I was thinking that uh, you know these stories of crises with uh, of ethnic groups moving often uh, that has I don't know um it's more sympathetic when the people involved are poor, you know. Uh, but yeah. here, this is a middle class movement. Do you think there was a difference in that, in, in the way, you know, it was perceived because of that, even though people lost everything? I mean, they might. And, and there is a line somewhere where somebody says, oh, that's for beggars. Yes. <laughs> the character says, well, we are, you know, we yeah, are poor. Yeah, exactly. You know? They didn't, well, I think... They were, they, yes, many of them were middle class in the sense that they had their own businesses. And what was common was for uh, everyone to have at least one servant in the house, uh, obviously yes. from an African background. So um, a houseboy or housegirl. So, yeah, for, for that can be absolutely perceived as middle class. But but equally, it like I said, you know, that it wasn't that they, they had lots and lots of wealth. They were still mm. sort of running day to day, most of them. There were some very wealthy factory owners. Uh, but the majority were not like that. But, but uh, it, you know, this whole thing about class almost becomes a little bit redundant when you're made a refugee because, yes, because yes, in in a sense, they lost even more um, in, in mm. wealth terms, at least. Mm. Um, and, and that means you're starting from scratch um, and having, having lost more and, 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 and essentially then they all became sort of very similar because, it, it was kind of a leveling, I suppose, because everyone had lost everything. Um, mm. There were still people that, as I said, some had sent out money. The wealthiest had sent money to Swiss banks, to other things many years before. And that was partly why Adi Amin was feeling the resentment that he was. Um, mm. But then they were all tainted with that same brush, I guess. Um, but yeah, essentially, though, they still had to start, you know, to start again in 90 days, even someone who's from a middle class background and not able to take any of that wealth with them. That is just as difficult um, as as it is for anyone, I suppose. Um, I suppose that could be worse. It could actually be worse because, I mean, if you're poor, I don't know, it sounds callous, you're of custom. course. <laughs> you're a bit more accustomed to it. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. So tell me, uh, did you... Was this like novel a long time in the making? I mean, in the sense that I, I suppose you've drawn a lot from family lore and things that you've heard from, you know, relatives. But beyond, beyond that, you know? Yeah, so I, 
I think if, when I was when I was younger, I mean, I've always read, although I didn't always write. I didn't come to writing till I was thirty-seven, actually. But I always read novels. I, I read a lot of novels from the Indian subcontinent. Obviously, things mm-hmm. like um, Salman Rushdie and Arundhati Roy. Um, other things in the UK, like say Zadie Smith. So. I, it always struck me that this story would be interesting, but not as not. I wasn't thinking about it as a writer. I just always thought, oh, I, I'd love. I wish there were more novels that told my story or my family story, and there was never mm-hmm. anything like that. And that was partly the reason for writing it. Um, but then, when I became um, sort of a writer at thirty-seven, um, I I felt that that was this. This was what the book I had to write, and I it really, really was quite compelling for me. I felt a for myself and my younger self as a reader, it was important primarily, but also mm-hmm. that feeling that we're losing these stories. They are within living memory, but they soon won't be. And if I don't capture them and do my small part to to keep them going, then it, it's just really sad. And I really wanted to to make sure I did sort of partly, yeah, obviously some some elements are based on my family history, but also just that wider history of the Ugandan Asians. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was very important. So I, I spent um, a couple of years writing it. So I started in 2015 and then um, had completed it by 2018 to, to, to the extent like I applied to literary agents. So yeah, it, it, you know, there was a lot of research that went into it, but it was quite a uh, quick and intense process in writing Mm. so tell me about the research because you know you can't see that in in the sense that like you know some books they hit you with the research but yours doesn't (laughs) my god just talk about that you know clearly you have because uh you know east africa you kind of mentioned the the landscape and the you know those sort of things which if you don't live there it's difficult to do right so talk about that yeah thank you yeah i mean i think well, what was interesting also is that in early drafts, I think that history very much did show. And I, it was, you know, it was my first book. So I was, I was really having to learn how to, I call it not being able to show the scenes. You don't want to see the joints. Mm, yes. um, it's that. And so I, I think uh, subsequent drafts, I was trying to sort of make sure that wasn't the case. But in terms of research, so because I didn't have a literary agent, I didn't know if I was going to get published. I was a bit wary of just going to Uganda and spending a load of money on a ticket and and spending lots of time out there. So the first couple of drafts was all desk research. I um, obviously read as many um, historical books that I could find. Um, I watched documentaries. The BBC was brilliant. There was lots of stuff on YouTube. And there was a really brilliant resource um, by SOAS, which is part of the University of London. Okay. And they, mm-hmm. they did hours and hours of video interviews uh, with Ugandan Asians at the time. Um, well, it, subsequently, and there were first-hand interviews um, in the present day, but they had, were about that time. And they were really helpful because I was hearing their voices, um, both in Gujarati and some were in Gujarati and some were in English, um, mm. and being able to capture that. So I'd written two drafts and then I thought, okay, right, I, I do think I'm going to try and get this published and I can't do that legitimately without having gone to to Uganda um I mean I'd spent many family holidays in Kenya and Tanzania and and there are as I said commonalities in terms of they all speak Swahili um as one of the main languages some of the food and the culture is similar but but Uganda is a landlocked country and obviously Kenya and Tanzania aren't so there are differences so Mm -hmm. I went um for a week to Uganda in I think it was 2017 and um it, to be honest, because I'd written two drafts by that stage, it was very strange arriving in Uganda. It felt like um, 
I'd been there in a previous life, I guess, which is a very Indian way of describing it. And it felt like the novel sort of came to life around me. But there were certain aspects that I built on because they would not have been possible without having visited. So there are certain details, smaller details. So there's a line early on in the book where... I refer to um, the mosquitoes glowing gold like embers from a fire, which I mm. which I saw in Uganda. I'd, I'd obviously I must have seen that many times on trips to Kenya, probably also when I went to India. But they're not uh, I hadn't gone there as a writer at that point, and I wasn't capturing mm. those details as a writer. So things like that were really helpful. But also being able to speak to local Ugandans and to get a modern day perspective of of Idi Amin, and that was quite interesting because whilst Whilst people certainly saw that, you know, he did he did some many horrific things. Obviously, Ugandan Asians were expelled, but also um, that they estimate up to half a million Ugandans were murdered under his regime. Um, mm. but there were there were some slightly more sympathetic views in the sense of what he was trying to do was to bring some equality to the country, um, and and there was some sympathy towards that and the fact that. Um, that he was trying to do things for ordinary Ugandans. And I found that really striking because you would expect mm. that mm. everyone had the same blanket view that he was a despot no. and, yeah, and a brutal dictator. And that wasn't necessarily the case. Mm. Because, well, you can see that in India as well, you know. I mean, everybody doesn't have the same view about the government. So, no. You know, yeah. I was thinking that, uh, yeah, you know, I was thinking that that, I mean, when there's there's clearly even in your book, it comes out that there's support for for the expulsion mm. among yes. the you know the, among some people, among a la- large majority, which is why it was happening, I guess. So yes, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I think that also obviously president the the president um, played upon that. He knew that mm. there was resentment, and he he very much played upon it, and and essentially made scapegoats of the Ugandan Asians. They weren't perfect. There were there was a lot of insularity there, but um but equally I don't think anyone would say that they deserved what happened to them either. So um mm. but but that's quite a classic behaviour obviously of um you know dictators and dictators, yes. Yeah. To to scapegoat um obviously in a more extreme way that was done with with Hitler. So mm. yeah, you know that unfortunately these things play out again in history. Yes, yes, uh, and I found the the character of December also really uh, quite fascinating. This man who yeah. at first you think that he's you know okay, he's just I mean he his his story and his secret coming out towards the end. You know when he's talking to Jaya, that's also mm. that was very sensitively done. I mean this man finds mm. that he, thinks that he's guilty as well you know in many ways so yeah thank you yeah so december is um the family's ha- they call call him a houseboy he's actually the mm. same age as or roughly the same age as jaya um mm. but everyone is called houseboys and housegirls there so um yeah so december has been with the family since the beginning you know since the 1940s he's watched the kids grow up um and most servants uh in reality in Uganda you know there was definitely a distance but some had a slightly warmer relationship with the families mm-hmm. than others um but um in this case yeah that there was there definitely was um some some mutuality of, of support and 
um, particularly, friend, I suppose, a, a kind of friendship uh, mm. here with Jaya and December in particular, which which does play out in certain secrets as, mm. as we talk about. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to show a Ugandan ex- perspective and I wanted to sort of make it quite nuanced. That was really important to me. And also to look at how um, Ugandans and Indians of that earlier generation might have interacted. I mean, this is, I, I wanted to explore what, the U- Ugandans and the Indians of the earlier generation and, and how that might have played out. And to be honest, this, this sort of relationship that I explore is, is a warmer one than most would have been in reality. But, um, it, it was important for me to look at what the, the closest sort of relationship might look like and and mm. there is um a mutual respect between the two they're not they're not friends in the conventional sense because that yes. just wasn't possible culturally obviously wouldn't mm. have been possible for a woman um or a particularly of jaya's generation but to to be honest any generation over there so um yeah and and for, for him and for december to be able to show the perspectives of an organ, ordinary ugandan and you know he does he's not sympathetic to what idi amin has done but he certainly is able to shed some perspective on why people yes. might have supported idi amin i.e poor ugandans have been held back and left behind and so mm you know, there is little hope there. What what would you do in that situation? And he helps to explain that to people like Vijay and others in the family um, and, and, and obviously show the reader as well a different perspective. Hmm. And also the fact that he himself is from a persecuted group, right? Yeah. So he's um, part of the Acholi tribe and they were very much persecuted um, by Idi Amin, um, who was of a different tribe. Um, and there was obviously this this tribal conflict going on and that that was some that was also a bit of a theme of the book I suppose which is looking at caste differences um mm. but also the tribal differences um mm. class when it comes to both Uganda but particularly obviously when you get to Britain where class is often a big topic um mm-hmm. so I wanted to look at those divisions um as a theme of the book um but yeah the Ocholi were very much persecuted and he you know in December does end up fearing for his life the family fear for his life so um that becomes um an important part of the book Mm. and i found that scene really chilling where you know when she walks down along alongside the river and then she looks out and finds those bodies you know yes so that that's the first scene in the the novel and it is um there's an element of surprise because they're just out Mm -hmm. for a day and then they go to the Nile and they go to the river and then they see these bodies, which Idi Amin um, and his soldiers would have thrown into the into the Nile. And this was common. It was common. This to was see. common. This was common. This yeah. Was okay. Yep. So that it was it was common in parts of uh, by the river that you, to be able to see bodies, but also later on in Kampala itself. Um, so children might be walking past a dead body in the street if a soldier had got them in the night. Um, so. And and I wanted to sort of show this, as you say, this very chilling uh, juxtaposition of ordinary life, you know, businesses going on, schools and and all the rest of it still carrying on alongside Mm. and in a very suburban sort of city setting Mm. um, alongside these horrible, horrific things that were happening and soldiers everywhere and guns um, and just fear, a lot of fear. Mm. Mm. And also, you know, the exploration of this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. I thought, you know, usually it's very cliche in, um, in South Asian 
uh, parallels, <laughs> you know. But this is kind of this nuanced. <laughs> I mean, I like that. Uh, neither thank of them you. is a pushover, you know. Uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, I mean, Jaya um, is the mother-in-law, and Asha is obviously the, the recent recently married, and she's the mother, the sister, the uh, daughter-in-law. Sorry, um, they are both partly inspired by my nanny and my mum, very mm. loosely inspired. Um, mm. My mum didn't have that kind of relationship with her mother-in-law. She had a very good relationship with her own mother-in-law. But um, mm. what I w- wanted to look at through Jaya and Asha was, um, as we talked about earlier, the generational differences. And mm. Jaya, um, you know, has been even more so restricted by her culture and her upbringing and her her point in life compared mm. to Asha, who is a bit more forthright, um, but still, still within the traditional confines. We're still talking about 1970s uh, Asian culture and, and you know what that might mean. But you know, she has been out to work before she got married. Would have liked mm. to have carried on working, and the, you know, these sorts of things have played out. But what I also wanted to explore, both through the dynamics of their relationship, which does change over time because of this horrific thing that happens, and they are forced together um, mm. in, in a situation is how their lives can change and do change once they arrive in the UK and what that might mean for them and how they, A, they're forced to adapt, but also in some ways their lives open up in different ways um, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to do in Uganda. And that was something else I wanted to look at. Hmm. Hmm. So what was the most difficult thing for you to do in this book? I mean, for you to, you know, what was the most difficult thing to do? Yeah. I think right. there are two there are two things. One is something that I already touched upon, which is that feeling that you are writing about living memory and you're writing real people's experiences. And that's the mm. thing about historical fiction. I mean, I, I mean, that's true of even if you're writing about, say, Victorian England or something like that. But obviously those people are not not around and that, that you want to respect their memories, but you're not yes. as, as beholden to that. Um, so that that was always challenging. I was so careful about making sure I got it right. And as well as obviously all the research I did, I did speak at length uh, with my own parents about their own upbringings, things that mm. they did at school, the, the, those sorts of things. Um, and the second part was conveying a culture that is so different, not only um, to the British public, obviously, and Western culture, but in some ways is, is, is very uh, unknown to... Uh, um, I would imagine many Indian people as well Um, and also Mm. Gujarati culture which is not often seen um, certainly in western fiction I've not read much you know usually the books are focused on Hindi life maybe Bengali um, Mm. life but not so much Gujarati and Mm. and being able to convey a culture that many people don't know or and obviously the history that they don't know as well um, and and balancing that with the human story um, it it was really the, the most difficult aspect I would say Okay. Okay. And I noticed, you know, like while I was reading it, um, I was thinking, you know, the, the, the spellings, I mean, the transliterations that uh, you yeah. used are clearly, yeah. for, you know, uh, a non-Indians, uh, a non-Indian Indians, tra- uh, you know, spellings, you know what I mean? Um, well, yeah, well, I mean, because they also, what I was getting into was sometimes I would start using Hindi spellings of English, uh, sorry, in English. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of one right now I can't think like like bangles I guess I don't know if you guys in Hindi I don't know if there's a different word for bangles we call them mongri in Gujarati but um and I don't speak Hindi so apologies Mm. but yeah there's certain words that 
I started writing in the Hindi way. And then I thought, well, no, I'm, these people are Gujarati and I want to convey the good. So actually Diwali is a good one. So yes, yes. in English, we call it Diwali, but mm. uh, actually we in Gujarati would say Dibari. So okay. I was trying to capture those those pronunciations. And yes, I, I, figured, I figured that because, um, but it's still, you know, like, I mean, it's kind of stand where when we transliterate here, it's standardized in a certain right. way. Yeah. So that's yeah. a different level to it. And kind of <laughs> as a leader from India, you know, I, I like the Diwari and all, and I stopped and I said, yeah. oh, is this a wrong spelling? Then I said, <laughs> you translating it in, uh, from Gujarati to, to English, right? So, yeah, I mean, I I just wanted to put my stamp of good because it's so it's so rare to see that I'd never, you know, mm-hmm. we talked about I'd not seen the the East African history seen in novels in my you know my family background seen in novels, but as I said, you know, for me anyway, the books that I had read in English at least over here, um, I'd never seen a book yeah with a Gujarati family at the heart of it, and they spoke mm-hmm. Gujarati and they had you know Gujarati food like the, a, a lot of that. I'd never seen before in a novel and it was really important to capture that specific aspect for me um and how it also melds with uh East African culture so so this was the other thing obviously was that you know the family will speak sometimes they will speak English words Gujarati words and Swahili words all in one Mm. sentence and that's how we sometimes speak at home still you know I speak I speak yeah so I can speak Gujarati but the the funny thing about it is that and and Gujarati was actually my first language even though I was born here I didn't speak English till I went to school um Mm. but my parents speak fluent English anyway um Mm. is sometimes you know you would they they would use English words but with a Gujarati accent (laughs) and things like that but sometimes we would use Swahili words and I would think that growing up that they were Gujarati and it was only later I learned that actually that was a Swahili word we were using so (laughs) we are all mixed together in into one and it's almost like a unique language that has been created and that was what I also was very keen to try and convey Mm. yeah it reminded me also you know Ravinder you know Ravinder Bhogal had got this book yeah yeah yeah. so yeah but she's what yeah, exactly. Yeah. That yeah. that culture is absolutely the culture. I mean, um, you know, growing up, my my, my family, we don't, um, we didn't eat meat and stuff, so it's slightly different. But mm-hmm. uh, um, although the family in this uh, in the novel do, um, and yeah, a lot yes. of that stuff, the jiko, the jiko itself is mm-hmm. something that you cook on in um, in in Kenya, for example. I think her family are from Kenya. Hmm. And and uh, yeah, the, this non-vegetarian thing that that's the one thing that I thought. Oh, you know the Gujarati, but they're eating chicken curry. <laughs> so <laughs> I I consider them to be Hindu Gujarati and and to be well, Jaya is 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 vegetarian, but some of them do eat meat. So um, mm. I, I decided to make them a Hindu family partly because mm. I wanted to. Again, it was that theme of you know I talk about. Shiva and Krishna and I talk about the different gods and how you know you yeah. destroy and you you recreate and I wanted that sort of theme and and also to look at uh the theme of of religion and how that might change for different people um as they progress through the story um yeah. I think it, you know I was brought up Jane um and I probably will in future write about Jane families but in this one I felt like I wanted to write about a Hindu family and they go to temple and I wanted to you know I've got scenes that where they, they they visit temple and stuff like that and I really wanted to to look at that as well mm-hmm. 
Okay. And um, what I, you know, I, I just thought that um, uh, Asha was very harsh to Pran. <laughs> <laughs> do you think so? That is so interesting. I do get different okay. perspectives. You know, because I thought, okay, I don't want to give out any spoilers. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, people would do anything to protect those they love, you know, and sometimes they do bad things. And Yes. So I think, um, yeah, yeah, obviously without giving away too many spoilers, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that there are secrets between yes. Pran and Asha. Most of them have come from, derived from Pran. And, um, and I think what it is for her is that, I mean, Pran takes this thing to extreme. So yes, he's looking after his family, but obviously, but, but also other people are getting hurt in the process. And, mm. and for her, for Asha, actually, it's more about the truth and the honesty yes. and how much hiding of the truth there is. And I think that that is ultimately what causes her the most pain. But I have, yeah. I definitely have heard different perspectives. Some who definitely take more, uh, who have more sympathy for Pran than others and others who feel a bit more sympathetic towards Asher and the fact that Pran was just a bit of a nightmare to live with at times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I I guess you know one would be really enraged if you kind of lied to constantly like that. <laughs> yes, I think it's that, and so I think there are different perspectives. <laughs> yeah, so great. You know, I really enjoyed the book, and I, I mean, I I'm sure it'll do very well in India at least. Thank uh, you. Surely abroad as well. So. Oh. I hope so. Yeah, no, I really hope so. I just want to bring this story to obviously to more people and I hope that people find it interesting. And it's been lovely um, hearing from people, uh, particularly the kids like like myself, of, of people that are from East Africa um, mm. and saying, oh, actually, I read the book and then I spoke to my parents about it and learned more. And I learned more through myself, through writing the book about my own parents, and my own grandparents. So if nothing else, just being able to a shed light on that history for everyone, but also bring those conversations to people that are from the back this background um, is, mm. is a lovely feeling. Mm. And it must be. Um, I don't know how many British people who are not Asian know about uh, you know of this generation know yeah. about this story. So yeah. So. You know. So there was a, there's definitely a generational divide. So people over about the age of 45, 40, um, had some vague memories of it. They would often say things like, oh, I remember seeing that on the news. I remember when the refugees came over, but I was a bit uh, detached from it and didn't know much about it. It's very interesting to hear. Um, but, but people who are younger, um, Asian and otherwise, many don't know much about or or anything about this history at all so mm. and that, that was my that's what concerned me also is that as I said it is a part of British history um in many ways because you know the the Queen entertained Idi Amin um at Buckingham Palace before all this happened the government uh, the British government were quite supportive of Idi Amin so and obviously a lot of the Ugandan Asians came over on British passports that's the other thing because it was a former colony so that, mm. that it's absolutely linked to British history and yet very few people know about it you know, as I said, Asian or otherwise. Um, mm. And, and you know, there are, and I'm sure, you know, Indians will have seen, you know, we have had a lot of political upheaval, as has happened in many places, including India, in the past mm. few years. But yes. things like Brexit, 
we yes. had the Windrush scandal with people being sent back to places like Jamaica, even though they've been brought up here and lived here their whole lives. Mm. Those sorts of things were playing out whilst I was writing the novel and, you know, mm. this sort of division and, and, uh, and racism again. And, yes. And and that's why it's so important um, for people to understand this, but in the UK, but also elsewhere, I think, to remind ourselves of these things happen and this is what can happen when they're taken to the extreme. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I remember as a child hearing you know, vague stories, you know, about, I don't right. know, young, I, somebody in my family said, you know, this is read out some report saying that, you know, the Amin stores body parts in refrigerators. Like, this was a... Yes, that's, that's right. There are many, I know there's many rumours. They, they said that he fed some of them, well, he fed bodies to the cro- to the crocodiles, but that would have happened anyway because there were crocodiles in the Nile. But sometimes mm-hmm. he would, uh, he had his own crocodiles as well. And it said oh, wow. that he, in his, his um, you know, his presidential estate, uh, that that's what would happen. Um, mm. So yeah, very chilling. Yes, uh, and also the story yeah. about how you know about a father sending his Indian daughter. Yes, yes. this is quite amazing. So uh, yeah, I mean, I came across that in my research. I hadn't heard about it before, but mm. you know, one of the theories as to why he, on a whim, suddenly said, "You've got ninety days to leave," was mm. that this that he was sort of friends with a, an Asian business owner who. Um, had a, an attractive daughter and Idi Amin said, I want to marry your daughter. And the businessman said no. Mm. And Idi Amin got very angry. The businessman and his family left overnight, quickly fleed the country because they feared mm. for their lives. Mm. And off the back of that, it said, uh, and, and, you know, it's rumour, so no one knows if that's true or not, but it's said that that's what partly caused the whole expulsion. Mm. Um, which isn't impossible with someone like Idi Amin, but it is possible yeah. that it was also actually um exaggerated and and it was a n- numerous things that led to the expulsion hmm. okay okay so yeah so thank you for coming on the show i mean i could keep talking about books, you. <laughs> you know um, and for the listeners go out and get kololo hill by Nima shah it's a uh, it's a good book um, it's a good read and plus i mean for me it brought back you know all these uh, uh, brought back these stories from my childhood, which were a bit ghastly. Oh, lovely. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have, just, just to end, I guess I'd say that yes, there are some terrible things that happen in the novel, but I ultimately wanted it to be a novel of hope. I do believe that uh, emigration can, as I said, open up lives, and and it's not all bleak and disaster it you know there is hope there there's human strength and that's what I hope the reader is left with too um but thank you yeah I really enjoyed chatting to you um and and you know I'm looking forward to see it out in India as well yeah great so uh, thank you and bye thank you thanks very much <laughs> bye bye This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.